The cold earth slept below, above the cold sky shone, and all around with a chilling sound from caves of ice and fields of snow, the breath of night like death did flow beneath the sinking moon. The wintry hedge was black, the green grass was not seen, the birds did rest on the bare thorn's breast, whose roots beside the pathway track had bound their folds or many a crack, which the frost had made between. Thine eyes glowed in the glare of the moon's dying light, as a fin fire's beam on a sluggish stream gleams dimly so the moon shone there, and it yellowed the strings of thy tangled hair that shook in the wind of night. The moon made the lips pale, beloved, the wind made thy bosom chill. The night did shed on thy dear head its frozen dew, and thou didst lie with the bitter breath of the naked sky might visit thee at will. Percy Bysshe Shelley, Lines, The Cold Earth Slept Below Alex Garland's script for Annihilation begins in space, blackness, and stars. In the stars, a lump of rock and ice moving through space, leaving a trail of dust and ice crystals. Walk deep inside the ice, blue-green iridescence, rotate around the meteor to reveal the moon. Float past the bone-white orb over the sea of tranquility to reveal Earth, blue-green jewel. Race towards the planet. Start to blaze as we hit the atmosphere, lighting up like phosphorus. Cut to exterior, outer atmosphere, night. The meteor burning in the outer atmosphere of Earth. The integrity of the rock and ice suddenly gives way. The body fragments. Cut to exterior, lower atmosphere, night. The meteor fragments separating, drifting away. Most pieces burn away to nothing, until there is only one, racing down towards the ocean, on which we find a coastline. And this is where we come in, in minute three. After six seconds of Lena thinking, and the guitar side of the score kicking in, we are behind slash inside the meteor. And we do not really see any of space. We do not see the moon at all. Second 13 or so, we have drifted out of the tail enough to identify outer space to the left, the Earth looming large and mostly out of frame to the right. The late lens flare and unexplained bits of backsplatter catching the light on the lens. And we cut second 20. Exterior, lighthouse. The script says night, but it's day. The scene is pleasant, the kind of image you might see in a painting or a postcard, and the guitar score offers no menace. Beach is Holcomb Beach off the coast of Norwich, England. The lighthouse for this film is modeled after the lighthouse at St. Mark's Wildlife Refuge in North Florida. In a piece for Weird Fiction Review, 4th February 2014, novelist Jeff Vandermeer explains that the setting for Annihilation is a transformed version of the 14-mile hike I have done for almost 20 years at the St. Mark's Wildlife Refuge here in North Florida. From the script, the meteor has almost burned to nothing before it impacts. What was a vast lump of extraterrestrial rock is now barely an ember, a spark. Then it hits the ground by the lighthouse, drilling into the earth like a bullet hole. The film keeps it simpler. Second 23, something bright but out of frame. And then second 24, it rockets it into the bottom of the lighthouse, leaving a trail of smoke that lingers behind and has the faintest of rainbow hues. The score makes no effort to augment the impact or even draw attention to it. This is just another thing happening on another day. Nothing special. A piece on Stardate.org tells us, quote, 
The chance of an impact depends on the size of the object. The bigger the comet or asteroid, the smaller the chance, since there are many more small objects out there than large ones. Tons of debris, much of it in pieces smaller than grains of sand, strike Earth's atmosphere and burn up every day. These are the shooting stars commonly seen at night. Some larger rocks survive their fiery descent to the surface. You can see some of these meteorites displayed in museums. The truly dangerous objects, those large enough to cause regional or global catastrophe when they hit, may appear once every few hundred thousand years. Therefore, the chance that such an object will hit us in any given year is roughly one in 300,000. Nothing to lose sleep over. End quote. We could turn to the experts. Parse through NASA's Center for Near-Earth Object Studies at cneos.jpl.nasa.gov or the International Asteroid Warning Network at iawn.net. But what matters is that smaller objects like this one seen striking the lighthouse are still quite rarely intact enough to impact the surface. June 2018, for example, a six-foot rock called the 2018 LA did get past Earth's telescope networks because of its smaller size until just hours before it was incinerated in the atmosphere over Botswana. January 2014, asteroid 2014-AA was spotted just a few hours before it fell over the Atlantic Ocean. October 2008, the 13-foot asteroid 2008-TC3 was spotted 19 hours before impact, and its precise trajectory was calculated to later locate fragments after it broke up over Sudan. The largest recent damage from such an object came February 2013, when a 56-foot asteroid exploded over the Russian city of Chelyabinsk shattering windows, and damaging thousands of buildings, injuring more than 1,200 people. According to Peter Brown, a physics professor at the University of Western Ontario, quoted in an article by Mike Wall, Space.com, 27th February 2013, it struck Earth's atmosphere at 40,000 miles per hour and broke apart about 12 to 15 miles above Earth's surface. The energy of the resulting explosion exceeded 470 kilotons of TNT. That's 30 to 40 times more powerful than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima in 1945. Like the great rock that fell out of the sky and bedded itself in the ground beside the well at the Nahum Gardner place in H.P. Lovecraft's The Color Out of Space, this meteor striking this isolated lighthouse is potentially far more dangerous because... Like the blob, like the lonesome death of Jordi Vero, like evolution, like Lilo and Stitch, like Ghidra, like Slither, like Star Kid, like the Andromeda Strain, like the Iron Giant, like Megamind, like Superman, like Roswell, like Wormwood. It contains something alive. Second 31 made a close-up, whatever it is, but we are so close as to see nothing identifiable. We don't even get a real sense of size or shape. The best description might be that it moves like a cephalopod, every bit of its surface moving. There are distinct sections, but they move along and beside one another in ways hard to understand. Deliberately so. We are not supposed to recognize this creature. We are not supposed to understand it. Second 36, closer to the lighthouse than before, as the colorful trail remains, but the central lingering explosion grows brighter. Then second 41, black screen, gray block letters, a font with sharp edges like Futura or Brandon Grotesque, but not quite. 
We'll talk more about the design element here when we get to the much more visually interesting end titles. But title design was done by Matt Curtis, who has 254 credits on IMDb, including Garland's previous film, Ex Machina. Title. Annihilation. Beats Pass. For the record, as I record this episode, I have not yet read Vandermeer's novel. I have finished reading Ballard's The Crystal World, and Vandermeer's Annihilation is my next read. But I would like to hint at a topic that will come up time and time again as this show continues. The titular annihilation, and life's tendency towards self-destruction. We are about to see cancer cells in this minute. An overt sort of self-destruction, but certainly not a conscious one. Consider instead Josie Raddick's self-inflicted scars. Consider Lena Karen's volunteering to enter the shimmer. Or when it comes to cancer, consider Serena Ventress's own volunteering. Ventress knows that she will not come back, but she has spent a year trying to understand the shimmer, and she wants to reach that understanding before she dies. Ventress is the John the Baptist, pointing away for Lena to worship in the direction of King's Christ figure. But I get ahead of myself. I will deal with some more in-depth Christ figuring in a later episode for sure. In the geometry of the space age, J.G. Ballard's short fiction and science fiction of the 1960s, Brian Baker describes the way that Ballard's The Crystal World, and others, and by extension Vandermeer's Garland's Annihilation works. It is, quote, marked out by processes of physical and psychological transformation, which are both ambiguous and ambivalent, end quote. And, quote, Ballard subverts SF tropes and conventions in order to produce a different kind of space fiction, namely one which explores the deep implications of time, space, psychology, and evolutionary biology in order to dismantle anthropocentric narratives and in turn open up alternative ways of experiencing and conceiving of contemporary human subjectivity. End quote. Baker argues, quote, Ballard's protagonists are only too eager to embrace the transformative possibilities of the disaster even if this is at the cost of personal dissolution, end quote. In the hidden script, Writing in the Unconscious, David Punter suggests, quote, the long tradition of enclosed and unitary subjectivity comes to mean less and less to him as he explores the ways in which person is increasingly controlled by landscape and machine, increasingly becomes a point of intersection for overloaded scripts and processes which have effectively concealed their distant origins from human agency, end quote. Ballard, Vandermeer, Garland. They blur the inner world and the outer world. Andres Gasterek describes this manifestation of the psychological in his biography, J.G. Ballard, as, quote, exteriorizing psychological adjustments and transformation, end quote. Second 45, cut to an alien form, a creature from another world, the script says. It has tendrils, it shimmers with iridescent color, it has immense fractal complexity in its shape, and it's moving gently like a sea anemone in a swell. This is not an alien life form, of course. This might even be a familiar image, but one most of us have likely never actually seen in person. A close-up of a cell under a microscope. With its villi out, it might resemble the sun with different coloration, but this is monochrome. The villi pull into the cell, the cell splits in two, the anaphase of mitosis. Villi erupt from both new cells. In the end credits, it says, Cell shots courtesy of David Barlow Film Archive, David Barlow Photography. You can find samples of similar footage at davidbarlowarchive.com. Then we hear a woman's voice, second 54. In the film, of course, we have already seen Lena. We already know this film stars Natalie Portman. 
It is her voice we hear now. Woman, offspring. This is a cell. The script says, as we watch, the alien creature starts to divide. Of course, the timing is slightly different on the screen. We've already seen one split, but the two new cells begin to split themselves. Woman off-screen continued. Like, like all, all cells, it is born. born. The full line is, of course, like all cells, it is born from an existing cell. Life begets more life and all that. But time runs out for this minute. We spoke. What was it we said? Wordlessly watching he waits by the window and wonders at the empty place inside. Annihilation. Annihilation. 